Okay, it's uh, Pew Bibles, page 303. It's titled, The Lord Rejects Saul, and I had, because he was naughty. Chapter 15, verse 1. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 men on foot, 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. And then Saul said to the Kenites, Go depart, go down from among the Malachites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, <clears throat> and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord, I have performed the commandments of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleating of sheep in my ears, and the lowing of oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have bought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. And Samuel said to Saul, Stop, I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the king, the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I've obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, the sheep, the oxen, and the best things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen the fat of the lambs. For rebellion is the sin of divination, and presumption is iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, 
He has also rejected you from being king. And Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me so that I may bow before the Lord. Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbour of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel would not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Thanks, Rex. Let's pray and ask God for his help as we come to this part of his word. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that it shines light on the darkness of our hearts and points us to the Lord Jesus. We ask that you would do that in us now and help us to understand what we've read. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It is a terrible thing when we see our leaders fall. Uh, I first got into preaching by listening to the sermons of Mark Driscoll, and I ate them up. He was riveting for a young man, newly married, ready to take on the world. It was only later that I realised how short of gospel grace his preaching actually was. And when he was accused of serious bullying and left his church, I was very disappointed. And more so when, rather than sit under the authority of those over him, like he preached about, he just went and planted another church. And there are countless other, even worse examples, aren't there? From Australian megachurch pastors who resign over misconduct and face lengthy court cases, to international Christian apologists who are only revealed to be neck deep in immorality after their death. More than once I've seen it happen to leaders close to me too, falling to one sin or another. It is a terrible, terrible thing when our leaders fall. And here in 1 Samuel 15, we see an even worse fall. You see, this isn't just the fall of a prominent Christian leader. As terrible as that is, this is the fall of the king of God's people. His fall will have profound effects, not just on him, but on the nation of Israel. So far in Samuel, we've seen God's people longing for a king. They were in trouble. There was no human king in Israel. But the Lord had shown time and time again that he was able and powerful to rescue them. But instead of listening to the Lord as their king, they've rejected him and asked for a human king. They've asked for a king like the nations. And so we've seen God gave them what they wanted. Saul, the ridiculously good-looking tall guy, who certainly looked like a king, but so far hasn't been very impressive. And now in chapters 13 to 15, we see him fall. We're going to focus this morning on chapter 15, what Rex read out for us, because it's Saul's second or third strike, depending on how you count them, and this is a shocking expose of Saul's sin and his utter failure to repent and turn to the Lord. But this isn't just an expose of Saul. 
This chapter is an expose on our hearts too. You see, Saul's fall and disobedience sheds light on our disobedience to God too. It shows that we too deserve God's judgment for our sin. And we, like Israel, need a better king. A king who can give us forgiveness and who can lead us in listening to and obeying the Lord. So, let's dive in. It all starts with a command. See, it's a king's job to listen to God. Last week in chapter 12, we saw Samuel and he he told Israel all the requirements and criteria for a good king. It's worth reading again because what Samuel says in chapter 12 will help us understand what goes so terribly wrong in chapter 15. Look in chapter 12 verse 13. Now behold the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and against your king. See, the king of Israel can't do whatever he wants. He is to be obedient to the Lord. In some sense, he is an under-king. He serves under the true king, the Lord of Israel. And Samuel gives criteria for how this king and the whole people should behave. We could sum it up like this. The people and the king must fear the Lord, serve him, obey his voice, not rebel against his command, but follow the Lord your God. That's what Samuel said in verse 14. And this actually isn't really new. And you see, this is what God's people have always been meant to do, from the time of Saul back to Exodus when God rescued them out of Egypt, in fact, all the way back to the garden. Because we are creatures and God made us, it's our duty to fear him, to listen to him and to obey him. But more than just because God made us, it's also because he loves us, because he's rescued us and rules over us for our good. This is our response of love and obedience to the Lord. With those criteria in mind, let's have a look at the first few verses of chapter 15. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Samuel reminds Saul who he is. The Lord is the one who made Saul king through Samuel. Now he must listen to the words of the Lord. That's the criteria for a good king. And this is more than just about hearing the words. Uh, Do you know how I know that my kids are really listening when I tell them to get ready to go out? It's not because they grunt affirmation. It's not because they say yes, Dad. I know they've listened when they do what I say when they start getting ready. Samuel is reminding Saul that it is his job to listen to and obey the Lord. Then comes the instruction, verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. There is no getting away from how awful this command is. 
Saul is being commanded to enact God's judgment against the Amalekites for their sin. And this judgment is going to be total. Man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. We rightly recoil, I think, at how terribly this, terrible this command is. This is awful. We're meant to feel that. And of course, this probably raises some questions for us. It raises questions about God's character that we don't have time to fully deal with now. But let me give you a few thoughts that might help us and you can ask me more about later. First, we need to see that this is God's judgment against the whole people for their sin. This is not about racism. It's not about ethnic cleansing. This is judgment on a people who have sinned terribly against the Lord. It's not mentioned in this passage, but the Amalekites were a piece of work. They practiced ritual prostitution, child sacrifice, all sorts of evil. And they had acted against God's people in Exodus. It's not just that they had a disagreement on the road. They chased God's people while they were wandering through the wilderness and they killed those who were faint and weary and lagging behind. You can read that in Deuteronomy 25. And this judgment that God commands here reminds us that death is actually what sin deserves. We have rebelled against the God of life, the one who we owe fear and obedience and service. We actually all deserve death. Here, God is pouring out that judgment on the people of Amalek. We should find this confronting. Secondly, we need to see that this is something that is unique. God judges the people of Canaan for their sin like this, but it's not something that's repeated. It's not something that God's people are to do now. This is a vivid, horrifying, lived example of the judgment that we all deserve because of our sin. God won't command his people to carry out this kind of judgment again because all judgment has now been given to Jesus. One day Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead and not just the Amalekites but all people everywhere will answer to his judgment. For now, he is patient waiting so that the good news of Jesus might be proclaimed so that many might have a chance to repent and find forgiveness and hope in him. But regardless of how we explain it, the command that God gives to Saul is crystal clear. There's no wiggle room here. Saul has been given his marching orders and the criteria for a godly king is to hear and obey God's word. Will he obey? Well, we see him try to obey close enough. I mean, at first things seem to be going well. Saul gathers all the people, 210,000 of them, then he goes up to the city of Amalek. And he even shows care in carrying out this mission. He sends a message to the Kenites, who had good relations with God's people, and he lets them go. And then he moves in, verse 7. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt, And he took Agag, the king of the Amalites, alive, Amalekites alive, and he devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag, and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. 
Saul was commanded to wipe out everything and everyone. And yet he doesn't. He spares and captures Agag, their king. And he takes the best of the livestock, everything good. They hang on to it. Notice here that Saul himself has done this. Verse 9 says very clearly, Saul and the people did this. And we can't explain this away as Saul showing mercy because Saul kills everyone, but they take the best of the livestock for themselves and then he captures the king. And in those days, you would take, kings would take other kings like a trophy. You'd capture them and they'd become part of your court, they'd eat at your table, they would be like a status symbol. But in this case... Saul's close enough is not good enough. It's like if I ask the kids to put their washing in the laundry and they bring it to the kitchen, which is kind of most of the way there, that's not actually obedience, is it? Saul has not listened to the voice of the Lord. He hasn't obeyed. And this is the heart of sin, knowing God's commands, yet doing our own thing. And close enough isn't good enough. It's not obedience if we decide that 90% obedience is enough. But we we can't be bothered doing the last 10%. It's not obedience if we decide that God's commands about stealing and murder are important, but he doesn't really mean what he says about gossiping. That's not that bad. That is disobedience. It is rebellion against God. It's thinking that we know better, that we should be the ones who decide for ourselves how much and when to obey. And the Lord let Samuel know about it, verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I've made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me, has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. The Lord tells Samuel that Saul has turned away from following him, that he's not performed his commandments. And remember our criteria of a good king? Saul has clearly failed at least two. And God is grieved. The word regret is a tricky one. It's not that God is saying, I made a mistake and I wish I hadn't done that at all. I'd do it differently next time. God is saying that he is grieved by what has happened. He is grieved by Saul's sin. Even though this is part of God's plan to appoint appoint his people to his promised king, sin grieves God. Samuel's angry about this. He's up all night. The next day he goes to confront Saul. And Saul gives us a masterclass in how not to repent. Samuel gets up early to track Saul down. On the way, he finds that Saul has set up a monument for himself at Carmel. Saul seems to be taking credit for his victory. Samuel finally finds him, and at first, Saul seems kind of oblivious. Verse 13, Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord, I've performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? It's kind of hard to know whether Saul genuinely doesn't get what he's done wrong or if he's pretending. But either way, he was supposed to listen to the voice of the Lord. But the voices of the sheep and the oxen give away that he hasn't listened to the voice of the Lord. And so he repents. He falls on his knees. He owns up to all his wrongs. He pleads for forgiveness. No, he doesn't do that. (laughs) He shows us how not to repent. He does what human beings have been doing since the garden. He makes excuses. 
First excuse, it was for a good cause. Verse 15, Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. We'll get to the blame shifting that Saul does in a moment. But for now, just notice that Saul insists they brought the best of the livestock to sacrifice to the Lord. But notice the way he says it. Rex brought it out beautifully for us when he read it. To sacrifice to the Lord your God. This is not what someone says who is following the Lord closely and fearing him. Samuel, this is your God. We're going to sacrifice to him. But good intentions don't make up for disobedience. Stealing to give to the Lord is still stealing. It's thinking that we know better how to honour God than God says. And this doesn't cut it with Samuel. He doesn't want to hear it. Stop, he says. He tells Saul what God has said. The Lord made Saul king. The Lord commanded Saul to destroy the Amalekites. And then verse 19. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And so Saul wheels out his second excuse. A bit of blame shifting. Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I've brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I've devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Uh, Saul really seems to think that close enough should be good enough, doesn't he? But it's not really his fault. After all, it was the people who took the spoil. They are the ones who brought the livestock to sacrifice to the Lord. Does this sound familiar? Remember Adam in the garden? That woman that you put here, she gave me the fruit. And we do it too, right? I didn't mean to yell, but he just made me so angry. I know I should love my church family, but have you met those people? They're hard to love. If my boss treated me with more respect, then I would work hard, but why bother? Saul's not owning up to what he's done. He's shifting the blame. We're going to come to God's judgment against Saul soon, but let's see one more excuse that Saul makes down in verse 24. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow down before the Lord. At least this one starts better. Saul acknowledges that he's sinned, but look at why. He was afraid of the people and he obeyed their voice. He's a king. He is supposed to lead the people in obeying and serving the Lord. Think back to our criteria. The Lord, the king, is supposed to fear the Lord and to obey the Lord's voice. And what does Saul say he's done? He's feared the people and he has obeyed their voice. Uh, But this is one that confronts us too, right? How often do we sin because we are afraid of what people will think of us? How often do we go along with the sin of others because we don't want them to think that we're a goody two-shoes or judgmental or holier than thou? Do we even do this in our church family? 
going along with gossipy conversations or complaining about others instead of talking to them or turning a blind eye to sin because we're afraid of what others will think of us. We are to fear the Lord, not people. We won't stand before others on Judgment Day. We will stand before the Lord. After this last excuse, Saul begs Samuel to forgive him and come with him so he can bow before the Lord. And that sounds better, but even here I don't think Saul's really repentant. He just wants to save face. He wants to have others see him bowing before the Lord with God's prophet. Real repentance is not about saving face. It's not about making excuses. Real repentance means facing up to what we've done wrong and accepting responsibility for it. Real repentance means facing up to God, confessing our sin to him and asking for his forgiveness. Real repentance means facing the those we've hurt and seeking to make things right. Real repentance means facing the consequences even when we don't want to. Real repentance means making an about-face, turning away from our sin and turning to God, seeking to do what's right in the future. That's real repentance. Maybe as you hear that, there is something that you need to repent of today. Keep that in mind. Saul doesn't do any of that real repentance I wonder if he had, if he'd modelled true repentance, if this story might have turned out different. But it doesn't. Instead, we see Saul facing judgment. When we read God's response here, we need to realise that this isn't Saul's first strike. Back in chapter 13, Saul took on himself what only a priest could do by offering a sacrifice when Samuel seemed late to show up. And then he made a foolish vow over a matter of pride which endangered the life of his own son and led his people into sin. This isn't Saul's first strike. But this one will have lasting consequences. Look in verse 22. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as of the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Once again, it's not about doing something wrong for a good reason. To obey is better than sacrifice, listening better than the fat of rams. Saul's disobedience is rebellion against God. It is presumption, taking on the role that only God should have. And the consequence is that the Lord has rejected Saul from being king over Israel. Saul will, if Saul will not rule Israel as he ought to rule, he will no longer be king. As a leader, he is held to account, judged to a high standard. Just as an aside, this is a warning for all of us who lead in different ways. God will hold us to account. We will answer to him and those who lead are held to a high standard. Saul tries to stop Samuel from leaving by grabbing his robe. Verse 27, as Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbour of yours who is better than you. 
The kingdom has been torn away from Saul. He's received his judgment. From this moment on, Saul's kingdom will decline. He will rule a a while longer, but his mandate from God is gone now. Another king will rise. And this chapter ends with these awfully sad words. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. And Samuel grieved over Saul. Remember, the the king is supposed to rule as under king, under the Lord. He will do that by listening to the word of the Lord through the prophet and through God's law. And now he is cut off from the prophet and cut off as king. He will no longer rule as under king over God's people. In one sense, God's rejection of Saul here is a mercy on Israel. Remember what Samuel said, if the people and their king will not obey God and follow him, God's hand will be against them. They will face God's judgment. Saul leading the people astray will not be good. He will lead the people into judgment. But that's what we see next. The people need a better king. They need a better king, a king who will lead them in fearing and serving the Lord, a king who will lead them in obedience. The Lord says that he will give the kingdom to a neighbour of Saul's, someone better than Saul. And we're going to meet that man next week. David, the king after God's own heart. In a lot of ways, he's a good king. He loves God. He models true repentance. But even David is a disappointment. He takes the wife of another man and has him put to death. He doesn't deal with sin in his own family. As good as David is, he shows us that we still need a better king. And that's the point. That's what God is showing his people. That's what God is showing us. We need a better king that he will provide. And that hope is going to be fulfilled. A thousand years after Saul, through David's great, 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 great grandson, Jesus. The start of the service Uh, John, at my suggestion, thanks John, read from Philippians chapter 2. I want to read that to you again now, but as I read it, keep in mind Samuel's criteria. In fact, I'm going to put it up after we read the verses. And let's see how Jesus does. Philippians 2, starting in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's just quickly think about our criteria. Jesus served God wholeheartedly. He didn't grasp tightly onto his divine rights as God's son. He willingly took the form of a servant, born as a real-life human baby. He obeyed God, even to the point of dying on a cross, willingly giving up his own life to serve the Lord. He did not rebel against God's commands. At every point, he was obedient and served God. He followed the Lord all his days and called all of us to follow the Lord by taking up our cross and following him. 
He did not snatch for his own glory and power like Saul did. Building a monument to himself, he humbled himself to serve us. And what's more, Jesus did something no other king could ever do. He paid for our sin by dying on the cross. For our disobedience, for our rebellion, our refusal to listen to God's word, the judgment that we rightly deserve for our lack of obedience, Jesus took on himself so that we could be forgiven, so that our relationship with God can be restored, so that we can face judgment without fear. And unlike Saul, whose kingdom is taken away, Jesus' kingdom is established. God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him a name above all names, and one day every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the king that we need. In a world of failed leaders and lousy kings, Jesus is the king who meets us in our brokenness, deals with our sins, and leads us to fear and obey the Lord. Because of him, we can face up to the reality of our sin without making excuses. Because of him, we can truly repent, turning away from sin and turning to him. And because of him, we can grow in obedience, fearing the Lord, serving him, obeying his voice and following him. It's all because of Jesus, the better king that we need. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you that even though we have disobeyed you and that we have not listened to your word as Saul did, Jesus has obeyed you. He went to the cross for our sin, paid the price for it, so we can come to you confident in your forgiveness. Please help us not to be people who make excuses for our sin, but people who are quick to repent and turn to you for help in confidence in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.